Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And on this Remembrance Day, I am Tamara Cherry, your host for the day, filling in for Amanda Galbraith as she takes care of her little baby at home. And joining me on the panel today is Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator and former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin, and Rashmi Nair, co-host of The Rush on News Talk 1010 in Toronto. Welcome, you guys. Hello. Happy Friday. Hello. Hello. Well, it's only fitting today that we open talking about Remembrance Day in our military. Thousands of people wearing poppies have turned out at Remembrance Day ceremonies across the country to pay their respects to those who died in service to Canada. Following the Veterans March and the singing of O Canada, a trumpeter played the last post, as we just heard, at the ceremony at the National War Memorial in Ottawa. Here are some of the sounds from the ceremony in Ottawa, including the gun salute and a fly passed by the Canadian Armed Forces. Navy Captain Bonita Mason, who is the Deputy Chaplain General of the Canadian Armed Forces, offered a prayer. We are forever grateful for the families who have supported and suffered along with service members. They are a source of strength and care that is indispensable and invaluable. And she thanked all the families who have supported and suffered along with service members. In a world fraught with struggle and instability, where war continues to rage in Ukraine, we gather to affirm with one another our determination to remove the barriers of division in a spirit of reconciliation. So the question that I want to put to you to today, Scott and Rashmi, is, you know, today's Remembrance Day, do we honor veterans in the best way possible throughout the year? Should this be a federal stat? That's one of the questions that often comes up. Um, and 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 are we diminishing uh, the way that we honor our military in other days in the year? And the, the reason we, we brought up this topic is because there was an op-ed in the Globe and Mail today written by two graduates of the Royal Military College of Canada, Anne Fitzgerald and Jason Donville. And, you know, they they didn't they didn't deny the fact that there's a lot of problems in the Canadian military that have been plaguing their morale there. Um, but they point out the fact that, you know, forget the fact that Canada is only spending 1.2% of GDP on defense while promising its NATO allies that they would increase to 2%. Um, but there was this one line that really got me. It said, it is ironic indeed that we make admirable efforts to mark Remembrance Day each year on November 11th, then engage in or allow for an unequivocal blighting of Canada's military the other 364 days a year. Scott, I want to start with you on this. Do you think we do enough throughout the year? I, we have this day and it is a very important day, but it is like that that line really struck me because we do criticize and as we should, but essentially these authors are making the point that um, we're not paying attention to the fact that some of the problems that exist in the military also exist in other um, pretty significant Canadian institutions, and they don't get the same attention, and therefore we end up with band-aid solutions rather than addressing the systemic problems. 
I think I fundamentally disagree with the article. I, I if you want to ask my honest opinion, I think of course. I think the fundamental pitch in the article is a familiar one, which is why do we pat ourselves on the back for how much we love the military and the respect that we all feel only on Remembrance Day, but the rest of the year we're underfunding the military. And that's a political debate. So I don't want to be put in a position as a Canadian, and I reject the notion that I ought to be, uh, be put in a position for saying, well, you're a hypocrite if you pin a poppy on your lapel and remember, in my case, my grandfather, my great uncle, um, all those others, people that uh, have been uh, women and men who served in, more recently in Afghanistan and elsewhere, um, you're a hypocrite if um, you do that on November 11th, but you're not an advocate on November 12th for an increasing military budget. Um, it's more complicated than that. There are, um, you know, there's, there are, uh, a lot of competing priorities uh, for fin for funds, um, and I've been part of governments that uh, had to, and uh, in times when deficits were uh, the imperative, had to cut back on military spending. And I've been part of governments that massively increased capital expenditures on the military. Um, so I don't I don't accept that either or proposition, and I don't accept the notion that I'm a hypocrite for pinning the poppy on my lapel on November 11th, but not not banging the drums and saying we're betraying our military unless we're advocating for two or three percent of GDP be dedicated to it. As for the issues with the leadership, um, that's a real cultural deep problem. Um, it's got to do with what the current crop of leaders, have, who they are, where they've been, how they've been formed and shaped. Uh, for 15, 20 years, it has to do with what we're doing now. It's not going to be an overnight remedy. So uh, I don't think they're getting too much attention. I don't think they're getting an unfair amount of attention. I think that when an institution has challenges of that kind, then you identify them and you work on them and you promise not to fix them overnight. You promise to fix them for real. It's, it's interesting that you say that, you know, you, you don't consider yourself a hypocrite and, and nor do I consider you a hypocrite for all the reasons you just stated. But I found that the article was more so addressing Canadian leadership, i.e. our prime minister, the Canadian government. Um, they point out that it's become unpopular for leaders to stand behind organizations that struggle with these any sort of institutional weaknesses. Um, you know, ones that once discredited will find it very difficult to recover. And and in the age of social media, the way that you know we cover these stories and and they just go like wildfire. I I tend to agree with that. Reshmi, where do you stand on this? Uh, yeah, I. I, I take Scott's point on the funding and uh, everyone is competing for funding, but I do think that on November 11th, we care more than we care any other day of the year. I'm just remembering um, Afghanistan under attack, people mm -hmm. being rescued and uh, flights coming back here and they had diplomats on them. And I had a veteran live on air with me on CP24 as these images were coming in. And I said, how do you feel? And he said, I don't feel great because I know that the interpreters that I've been trying to rescue since I came back to Canada are still in Afghanistan. So do we care about our veterans enough outside of November 11th? I would argue no. Do we care about what they care about outside of November 11th? I would argue no. We should be treating our veterans who are here uh, with more respect, i.e. attention, hearing what they have to say, getting those interpreters here as we promised them we would. Uh, so there are issues we as Canadians and our government uh, recently could be covering in a more respectful way. 
Yeah, you know, I, I don't think that it's really possible for a lot of people in society right now to care about any issue for longer than one or two or three days. You know, I, I feel like social media has sort of conditioned us that way. And just the way that the news cycle goes, I think about, you know, when I was reading in this article about the um, the fact that we're only spending 1.2% of GDP, I was thinking, think about how much we talked about that back in February and March after Russia invaded U Ukraine and how many people were calling for that increase to 2%. And then it just sort of fizzled out. So I, I don't know, I, th I think that I know, there's- if you're there's, if you're a vet today, does does November 11th, I'm asking, does November 11th feel like, you know, banging pots and pans for healthcare workers during a pandemic? You know, are we, are we putting mm -hmm. poppies on and standing here and saying thank you for your service and then not listening to them the rest of the year? But I, 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 to that, how much we, whether we go from 1.2 to 2.0, I, I mean, I, I, I struggle with this and, mm -hmm. and, and I even struggle with a portion of the, the, the article that sort of says, well, why are we being singled out among other institutions? Well, Hockey Canada is taking a pretty big beating. I have a lot more enduring affection for Canadian forces than I do for Hockey Canada. Um, and I don't think the test of it is, you know, whether like in 2015, 2015 to 2016, we increased the DND's uh, budget, its operating budget by 25% in recognition of the fact that there was some room to catch up that it had been underfunded. Um, we we, we got we to stop it there, Scott. We got to stop it there just because we're coming up against the break. Uh, let's repit. We're going to pivot after the break to masks. So something else to get us all riled up over. Uh -huh. I'm Tamara Cherry with Scott Reed and Reshmi Nair. <laughs> to free for all Fridays on the iHeartRadio talk network. And your host for today is coming at you from Regina, Saskatchewan. That's me, Tamara Cherry. And I believe both of our panelists are in Toronto today, but I may be mistaken. Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator and former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin and Rashmi Nair, co-host of The Rush on News Talk 10 in, 10 in Toronto. You, got, you guys don't do these shows while on vacation or traveling, do you? Am I right? You're both in Toronto? I'm in studio. Yeah, it's a nice rainy day here. Oh, nice. I, I'm I'm in North Toronto. I like to specify. I want North be, York. Like, North yeah, York. No, 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 no. For <laughs> sake. Just not North York. Just North high Toronto. enough from the water. Yeah. Yes. Just not water I'm, level. You don't. Do you get the lake effect snow up there, Scott? No, 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 no. Uh, the Eglinton Crosstown, the construction is so overwhelming and disorienting uh, that the wind can't even get past it. So. Right. So you are you are above the construction zone that has been ongoing for years and years. All right. OK, so this week, I mean, healthcare was a topic that was inescapable this week. It is it is increasingly becoming or I should say maybe again becoming something that is really affecting us, especially people with kids as you know, first it was Tylenol and ibuprofen for kids that wasn't being stocked on shelves. We couldn't find it anywhere. Now um, we're dealing with a, a shortage of amoxicillin, the powder that pharmacists need to, to mix uh, a very common antibiotic used for things like ear infections, chest infections, that sort of thing for kids. Um, and meanwhile, we had, uh, you know, health ministers from across the country meeting with the federal health minister in Vancouver and talks were falling apart because they're going back and forth on, um, you know, whether the federal government should be increasing spending to the provinces on healthcare. So it, it can be, it can seem very frustrated during these times. Um, it feels like nobody's talking to each other or at least not, you know, showing a united front where there should be. But one thing that some experts think, think that we should be doing is reinstating masks. 
And it might seem like an obvious thing with uh, these, these various respiratory illnesses leaving so many kids in the hospital, but experts are actually divided on whether we should take temporarily, whether we should temporarily reinstate mask mandates. Dr. Fahad Razak, former scientific director of Ontario's COVID-19 science lab, for example, said unprecedented viral infection strength justifies the, the implementation of mask mandates in public settings. So the reason that I think it's the right time to start mask mandates now is we have very few options, truthfully. The, the problems with capacity, with beds, with staffing, those are going to take years to address. Meanwhile, Dr. Alan Grill, Chief of Family Medicine at Oak Valley Health's Markham Stouffville Hospital, says wearing masks is the right thing to do. But while there has been a focus on education settings recently, Grill said that focusing on just one setting like schools, if there is a high risk of infection in the community, would not make sense. If you're going to make masks effective, to only do it in schools, I'm not sure is the right decision because those kids could then go out after school. They could get together in social settings. They could go to sporting events where thousands of people aren't masked. So if we're going to do this and we're, we're going to come together as a community to support each other, right. everybody sort of has to wear masks in the appropriate settings. It can't just be in one spot because I don't think it will be as effective. Was that you saying right there, Rashmi? <laughs> No, was but that, that sounded that like me, didn't it? It did look like you, right? Did, okay, so I want to go to you myself. first because your son is what, in grade one? Yeah, six years old. I talked to him about wearing a mask today. And yeah. uh, there are kids who are wearing masks in his class today, and I'm proud of them. People are going to say, oh, they don't wear them properly and all the rest of it. Great. Yeah. We're, we're not going to get through this without each other, and not everyone's going to get it right, but we are a collective. And really, I feel like a crab in a bucket at this point in this third winter of COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah. So does your son wear a mask? And ha like, has he been the whole school year? Uh, we started the first week of September with a mask on. And then he said, no one's really wearing a mask. I want to not wear a mask. And I thought, oh, well, it's great for socialization. It's his he started at this school in grade one. He was yeah. in kindergarten in another school. So I see the benefits of not wearing a mask, obviously. Uh, but I also see the benefits of wearing a mask, obviously. So he is wearing one now. Uh, I'm wearing one when I go to the nail salon, the grocery store. Today, I wore a mask. Uh, I'm, I'm wearing one when I need to. And I hope reasonable people can see the sense in that. You know, I like I I struggle with the mask thing for kids in schools because it does seem like the obvious thing. I just wish that um, it would be mandated, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon here in Saskatchewan with the way that our government has responded to, um, you know, our other public health crises of late. Um, but yeah, my kids are in grade, what grades are they in? One and three, the school age kids. And like, I think there might be like one other kid in their class, if that wearing masks. And I worry about the social impact. And it sounds so silly when we're talking about this virus, but I do think that this is an issue that requires real leadership from from the government of it because if, if it's not mandated i just don't think it's it's going to be effective scott what are your thoughts well i'm like incoherent frankly on this <laughs> you know how i was saying in the last segment like i was going to get in my backup going hey damn it tomorrow i'm not a hypocrite well here i'm a hypocrite okay like i'm a yep. total hypocrite because in broad terms like scott reed brain applied to the issue i'm like yeah you know i like feels to me like the risks are mounting and the obvious precautionary thing therefore to do would be to go back to masks. But, mm. but you have to remember, I am a hypocrite. So I say to myself, <laughs> but I'm not willing to make my son wear one in school, at least not yet. I myself am kind of starting to move back from the territory. We're like, you know what, I, I'm going to 
I'm going to wear it at the grocery store, mm -hmm. but I'm not wearing it, you know, whatever. And in most other places yet. So, you know, I, the reality is that I look at the discussion, I think to myself, it probably is sensible. At some point, we're going to see that, you know, if, if the threat rises, you know, I'm going to start wearing masking more often. At some point, I'll say to my kids, sorry, it's getting to the point where you've got a mask. And in terms of government and going back to, a you know, a mask mandate, I think the reality is that there, there's going to be a grave reluctance to do that until and unless it's obvious that there has to be. And remember, there was never a Nash ma uh, national mask mandate, uh, you know, throughout yeah, it was province by province. Yeah, it was uh, province by province. And yeah. so, and even then half the time it became region by region, you know, in terms of yeah. health, uh, local health authorities. So, um, you know, if you're going to delegate in that sense, like don't be holding your breath uh, to, you know, be holding your breath underneath a mask. Because uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you're going to get uh, a mask mandate until and unless uh, the hospitals are broken. It literally. Well, but okay, but we, we've been saying for the last three years, the hospitals are broken. Yeah, and if the hospitals like, break, at what point did the hospitals break? No, but like, if when hospitals did, break, guys, masks are not going to save us. That's the thing: is masks are the lowest hanging fruit. It's a convenience issue, and it's just being thrown around like that's the only thing we're willing to do to help save a crumbling healthcare system. The hospitals crash, and you put a mask on. It's too late, Scott. Okay. What, at what, I'm not at in what charge point? of the hospitals. Eh? I wasn't saying that's the only thing we can do. Rush me like, you know, I'm sorry, man. I wasn't trying to upset you. Uh, <laughs> I was upset. Just, you're trying a little just, bit though, right? Like, holy smokes, you're like blaming me for the healthcare system. <laughs> I'm, I'm just upset. saying. Uh, hey, what what else say, could we do, Scott? What What else do you think we could be well, doing right now or governments could be doing? What else? I mean, I think there's, you know, there's, there's lots of systemic things. Just, uh, you know, I think that we, I think it's still uh, quasi criminal that we did not actually uh, ensure that there was HVAC in every single uh, senior's home and every single yes. and and every single school. I think that that should have been table stakes. We should have said, "Well, my God!" and and there was capital provided for that, um, and there was some of that done, but not comprehensively. So I think that there's things like that that are in the go back, you know, machine that we should have done and that we should but, be doing. But one of the biggest things is that you know we can't get children's Tylenol or ibuprofen. So something that that could have been easily handled like a kid's fever before is sending kids to hospital you can't get amoxicillin easily for kids so again something like an ear infection that you should used to be able to treat at home kids are ending up in the icu so is there anything other than masks and we've got less than a minute left that we should be doing either of you well, obviously we want to iron out supply issues in terms of availability of those medicines i think they're on that i think it will happen i don't think those issues are necessarily related right like it isn't that we didn't run out of medicine because people weren't wearing masks. No, but but the issue at hand of the, the healthcare system, especially when it comes to children's hospitals, children's ICUs, very much does seem to be linked to the fact that, you know, yes, we do have an increase in this RSV, this, this particularly nasty virus. But by and large, if we had the medications available to us that we usually had, it wouldn't be a problem. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Well, okay, I, 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 you have 20, okay, seconds, really 20 seconds. We had a second. doctor Go. from Sick Kids on the Rush yesterday. And, you know, to Scott's comment about we're, we're not running out of medicine because we weren't wearing masks. It was the lifting of public health measures that has brought us to this point. The lifting of public health measures in different provinces. Something to but consider. But it's supply, it's supply chain supply issues. Chain issues. It's supply chain. Okay. I'm Tamara Cherry, Rush Nair, Scott Reed. How could you go and south of the border after the break.
And now more of Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I'm Tamara Cherry, your host du jour, coming at you from Saskatchewan. And in Toronto and North Toronto, we have Rashmi Nair, co-host of The Rush on News Talk 1010 in Toronto, and Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator and former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin. All right, folks, I want to go south of the border. I don't know about you guys, but I've been watching the midterm, the lead up to the midterm elections in the United States quite closely. Um, and what was predicted by many re in, on the Republican side to be a red wave, a red tsunami ended up not being so much. So the, the question I want to ask you guys today is what do the U.S. midterm results say about the state of, quote, Trumpism? And that's certainly something we've seen come up here to Canada and and what it could mean for politics in Canada. Um, and also a part of this, like we're in such an interesting time right now because Elon Musk has just taken over Twitter. And it seems that he underestimated, just as the Republicans may have done, um, you know, how how advertisers would react to some of the things that he's doing. And that <laughs> seems to be backfiring. So I don't know if one of you guys wants to start. Scott, let's go to you first. Reshmi had the first go last time. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on what the U.S. midterms are saying and what it could mean for Canada? Well, it has implications for Canada because of the bilateral relationship, but I'm not sure that it has immediate huge implications in terms of um, in terms of the, the the manner in which our politics will unfold. I, I I think it's you know there there were lots of factors that made this an unusual midterm, uh, which should have been a thumping for the Democrats in the Biden White House. Uh, I think the most important one is that Trump put himself on the ballot. Like Trump just won't mm -hmm. go away. He just won't shut up. He refuses to not uh, just see ground. Like the strategic thing for him to do would have been to get out of the way and let Biden take all the slings and arrows. Uh, but no, he had to put himself on the ballot. He's the one that chose terrible candidates like Oz and Herschel Walker. Mm -hmm. He's the one that's uh, in the news constantly. When you look at the exit polls to date, huge factors like Roe v. Wade made certain that the Democratic vote mm -hmm. came out. It probably helped tip a little bit more younger voters than would be usual. But overwhelmingly, people said they were voting against Biden or against Trump. Trump isn't even running and people mm -hmm. were voting against Trump. So I think that's got big implications for us. The scary thing is there's something worse slash better than Trump in the wings. DeSantis is mm. just as bad as Trump. You talk about Musk. I mean, that's going to take you very quickly to cycling disinformation mm -hmm. and, and normalizing lies. And DeSantis is going to em embrace us all of that. He just doesn't bring the same brand of, uh, of over crazy that Trump does. So <laughs> I'm glad to see Trump hurting. Um, but I'm afraid of what uh, follows. Um, hey, because I, 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 I want to pick worse. up on what you just said there, Scott, because when we were talking about this on the war room on uh, News Talk Today earlier, earlier this week, off air, I was chatting with some of the panelists about this. And somebody brought up the point that Donald Trump, you know, if the Republicans don't throw their weight behind him and they they go ahead with DeSantis, Donald Trump will probably just run as an independent and he would probably beat DeSantis. So to you, Breshmi, I'm going to come to you in a second, but Scott, do you see that playing in at all? No. 
I don't think that will happen. Really? Okay. Rushmi, what do you think of the midterm results? Ronda Sanctimonious is the only Uh thing I took away from the entire (laughs) midterm. So I'm glad he came up in this discussion. That was all I had to offer you, Tamara. Ronda Sanctimonious. (laughs) Uh, What happens there now? Uh, I, I think, yeah, the red trickle is a good takeaway for anyone who's following politics. I think the swinging has just been so severe back and forth that even Americans need a break from that. And and yeah, mm-hmm. to Scott's point, I mean, the issues were just uh, so large, right? I mean, Roe v. Wade is going to get people out to vote, even if they aren't usual voters. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I'm happy it was a red trickle. Uh, I don't think Donald Trump is going away. And I I don't know how the Republicans deal with that, if they all get under his umbrella again or if they support Ron DeSanctimonious. But but given that there was this obvious repudiation of Donald Trump in the, these midterms, I, I, I feel like it's inescapable in, in terms of how we look at that and how it could it potentially impact politics here. Like Pierre it's populism, Pauliasm. right? Yeah, it's populism. Exactly. And that, that's what he ran on. He, he ran as ba- under Trumpism. He's, you know, anti-media. He's fake news. He's all of those things or what got him elected. Is this a sign of potentially what is to come in Canada? And also I'll point out like in Brazil just recently, again, it was Bolsonaro, the extreme right wing candidate and president uh, versus um, Lula, who is the extreme left wing candidate. And it was very, very close. But Lula came out on top. I just I can't help but feel like maybe the winds are changing. Yeah, I hope so. I don't think so. Um, yeah. You don't think this will have implications, Scott, for perhaps yeah. even even how Pierre Polyev acts or or deals with the media, anything like that? No, I don't think so. I, I there think was a, that... there was a lot of a lot of election deniers running who were not elected in the midterms down in the U.S. But I don't see the I don't see the thread to um, to Polyev. Polyev is DeSantis. Okay, so like if we want to try to, and first of all, I think it's to say the least an inexact science to try to make these things congruent. But if we're going to, he's not Trump. He's never been Trump. He's smarter than Trump. He's more uh, crafty than Trump. He's more strategic than Trump. He's more skilled than Trump. So he's more like DeSantis. He is a creature of strategic calculation. And so, for example, you see, like if he was Trump, he'd still be talking about the convoy. Polyev hasn't talked about the convoy in weeks, maybe months. Why? No, because did, wasn't he, no he just wasn't he just expressing it. his support still for the convoy yeah, his, this week? His communications <laughs> director, his communications well, yeah. director supports the convoy. Yeah, that but, that made news yeah. this week. Like because they obviously knew that would be coming about. up, given that she was honking the horns in the convoy, and then he's yeah. just she's just appointed as a communications director. He he got asked a question, he gave a road answer on it, and it made news. If you listen to what he's talking about, you look at what he was doing in that news conference. Where was he? He was in a supermarket. He's been laser beam in, in BC. He's not talking to the journalists in Ottawa. No one gives a damn. Scott. Really, seriously, no one no, gives a damn if he's I talking think... to the journalists. What I'm trying to make a point though is that. He is DeSantis. He is not as dumb as Trump. He won't just continue to talk about the convoy when he knows it's, it's against his own political interest in the same way that Trump talks about the last election. He is like DeSantis in that he will move to economic issues. He will move to those mm. issues, allow him to mobilize people who feel grievance, but in a way that's safer and more strategic for him. That's why he's more dangerous. That's why DeSantis is more dangerous than Trump. And that's why Polyev is more like DeSantis than Trump. Yeah, Polyev and DeSantis probably use the same Brill cream, the hair products. And and but don't you think, Scott, that maybe with you know with the populism, I think I'm trying to connect dots in Tamara's question here in that Polyev's not Trump, 
but he can benefit from the populism and, and the trend that we're seeing in the U.S. People there are hungry for someone like yeah. Donald Trump to cheer on, right? They don't like the way politics uh, are, they just they just don't like politics. So they like that Donald Trump's the bomb to blow up the political world. Um, so I think there is that interest in Poiliev as well. I'm not saying Poiliev yep. is creating it, but he might be capitalizing on it the way that Trump has. He just scares me. Uh, not not only that, but but we have Pierre Poiliev supporters that wear "Make America Great Again" hats. There's there's oh, yeah. a lot of Trump supporters up here who are Poiliev supporters. Yeah, but the so supporters can be the same. It doesn't side. it doesn't make mm -hmm. the politician the same, right? Tamara, the supporters can no, be the I same. Agree. Yeah, but it might be that they're after the same thing. And I don't know. It may, I just can't help but feel that maybe there's some people who supported populism or Pierre Poiliev. And I, I, I just I just wonder if we might be going in that direction. And when we watch it through the lens, too, of what's happening with Twitter, you know, I, I was saying to Sam today, and I, I think I said it, our producer Sam, and I think I said it on air maybe earlier this week, that it feels weird. Like, I love Twitter. I'm an avid Twitter user. And I feel like my house has been taken over by drug lords. And suddenly I'm living in a crack house. And what, what is going on? It's just, it's the internet. Log off. Go for a walk. <laughs> yeah. And, I know. By the way, we are going there. Like, we are we are there, right? Like, Pierre Polyev is a grievance populist. He is borrowing mm -hmm. all sorts of those things. All I'm saying is he's not as dumb and clumsy as Trump. Mm -hmm. he's, and that's a more frightening thing because he also hasn't been he has also hasn't been tested by a, a general election. You know, he's, oh, well, he won the he's leadership. A career, he's a career politician. He's going to do well, guys. Yeah. OK, uh, okay don't underestimate mean, this guy. Don't assume no, that I know I know I against him. That's going to defeat him. He's going to have I'm, to be beaten. It ain't going to happen on his own. I'm not saying what will or will not happen. I just think it's very interesting to watch what happened in the midterms because it's so not what was predicted. And I just, I wonder, because I do think that Pierre Poiliev, his popularity came from Donald Trump's popularity. Anyway, okay, I'm Tamara Cherry. We're here with Scott Reed and Rashmi Nair. We have climate change coming up after the break. And I've got some new names for Scott Reed and Rashmi Nair. Free for All Fridays continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I am Tamara Cherry, your host for the day. And joining me today are Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator and former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin, and Rushmi Nair, co-host of The Rush on News Talk 1010 in Toronto. Okay, so Dwight Schrute on The Office is played by the actor Rain Wilson. I'm just pointing that out because I didn't know what his real name was until today. He has changed his name to Rainfall Heat Wave Extreme Winter Wilson <laughs> to, protest, to protest climate change. I don't think he's changed it legally. He has changed it on social media, apparently. That's what he's saying. And he has changed it on his stationery. Here's what he had to say in a video he posted to Twitter earlier this week. Hi there, I'm Rain Wilson, or should I say Rainfall Heat Wave Rising Sea Levels, and we have to do something about it now. Wilson. <laughs> Sorry to get so dark so quick. You see, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. As the polar caps melt, it drives up risks throughout the world, including extreme weather events that affect all of us. So as a cheap little stunt to help save planet Earth, 
I've changed my name on Twitter, Instagram, and even on my fancy writing paper because I'm an Arctic Risk name changer, which is going to be a game changer. Okay, I don't know about that, but I went to arcticrisk.org on uh, Rain Wilson's, I mean, sorry, Rainfall, Heatwave, Rising Sea Level, whatever it is, advice and punched in our name. So first, I, I want to point out some of the celebrities that he called out to do the same. These are some of the ideas he had. I thought they were great. Cardi, the Arctic bee melting. Jack, black carbon is killing us. <laughs> Typhoons are increasing Burrell. Amy, polar bears are endangered. Harrison, why not drive an electric Ford? Samuel, earth is getting hot as L. Jackson. Yes! I thought that was like, I went to so arcticrisk.org. I put in our name, so I would be, I don't, I, these are not nearly as clever as what he came up with for them, but just so you guys know, I would be Tamara, massive flooding cherry, Reshmi, extreme winter's nair, and mm -hmm. Scott, winter worsens reed. Um, again, not as catchy as what he came up with, but I guess the, the question for you guys in this is, um, is this performative or effective, Rashmi? Oh, it's a lot of fun. Winter worsens. Like if you could worsen anything, Scott could worsen winter. Winter could not get any worse, but Scott Reed could worsen winter. With his I'll cold, try. dead heart. Yeah, I think I could pull it off. I think it should be rush me to higher ground there. That's what I'm uh, <laughs> yeah, Oh, I like that. I gotta, I gotta get to North Toronto. I'm South Toronto right now. I'm too close That's to right. the water. You're in the lowlands. You're in a floodplain. <laughs> yes. uh, anything to get our attention, I think. Anything to get our attention. I love Dwight Schrute, Rain Wilson. He's great. I know. I'll do anything he says. Okay, so are you going to be rush me to, to higher ground Nair then come yeah. come Monday on on the rush? Yeah, rush me. Scott tells me where he lives. Sure, yeah, I'll find it. <laughs> Scott, what about you? What do you think? Performative or effective? Uh, it's it's certainly performative. I'm not sure it's effective, but it's fun. So, like, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I think if there's one thing that you know, the, in, in broad terms, the climate agenda and the climate movement could use, it's uh, a little humor, uh, a little less winter worsens kind of frown on their face, right? So I mm -hmm. think, you know, combining a little humor, a little cheek, a little fun, probably a good idea. So, and so I mean, so I'm, I'm going to pitch like Reshmi, or no, it could be Toronto becomes Hawaii, don't you think? Like, you could just make climate change seem appealing things could get better. Well, I think that's sort of the opposite effect that they're going for. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I've okay. Had People that, are going to welcome that. They're not going to be worried about the shark circling Maui right now. They're I've had say, that Hawaii. discussion with guys in bars, right? They'll be like, hey, what? Climate change ain't so bad. I mean, like, well, there's going to be a beach. It'll be warmer here. I can wear shorts in February, right? And I'm like, okay, forget it. I got to move to another school. Yeah. Scott, shorts in February, read. There you go. Okay, so this is no doubt this video that uh, Rain Wilson, aka Dwight Schrute, put out this week. It's no doubt uh, timed this way because the United Nations COP27 climate change conference is happening this week in Egypt. And one of the things we were discussing on News Talk today earlier this week was, you know, are people paying attention? Um, because our prime minister isn't there. Uh, Greta Thunberg isn't there. Does this have the does this climate change conference have the clout that it used to? One thing that was was interesting is that the Canadian pavilion, while um, while our prime minister was not going, um, apparently something that they were putting on display was part of their delegation being 
fossil fuel industry representatives. And that apparently ruffled some feathers over there. I spoke with a woman named Sapora Berman, chair of the Fossil Fuel Treaty Initiative. She's a Canadian environmentalist and writer at COP27, and she's in Egypt. Um, and here's what she told me on News Talk today earlier this week. You know, I, honestly, I just think it's, it's, it's crazy because these are companies that are not going to design their own demise. And we know that we need to move away from fossil fuels. We know that we need to decline emissions and production. That's what the science say. That's what our former environment minister, Catherine McKenna, said today, yesterday, when she, as a UN advisor, released the criteria for net zero. And, and she said, look, you are not net zero and you're not a climate leader if you're expanding fossil fuel production. From, from a communications perspective, Scott Winter Worsens Reed, um, would you say that, that this is a bad look or it's justified having having the fossil fuel industry as part of the Canadian delegation at this international conference? Well, it should be there. Um, and I understand why that would bother some people, but it should be there because you want energy producers. Like It won't work unless you can get people on the same page. I don't think you're going to get people on the same page. But, you know, I've been going to COPS and haven't gone for a while to one, but I went to COP5. Like, I, I've, I've been to these things, and they are always uh, representative of it, uh, business, industry, government, and civil society, particularly environmental groups, obviously. Um, I, I don't, like, their presence there is nothing new. The challenge is that um, there's not, there isn't the political will to deal with net zero. There isn't an industrial will to deal with net zero. There isn't public will to deal with net zero. The unpleasant truth about climate change is that most people recognize it's a reality, but most people are also reluctant to accept the sorts of sacrifices that would be required to actually do something that would affect it. And so you end up in this terrible place. People don't respond to crisis until it's a crisis. Mm -hmm. Rashmi? I don't know why people think it's a big deal that Greta Thunberg isn't there. Obviously, she attended a few and realized that no one was listening to her. So why would she waste her time going to another? Anyone younger than us just wants us to get on the same page and deal with climate change, right? So I think I think it's a big deal, though, because it changed it like she was a big part of the branding when it comes to to things like the cop conference yeah, but, you know and she so want to call it out yeah but did she, she want to be part there. of it exactly that's that's yeah, what that's i'm saying point. is she went there and contributed and nobody listened to her the world is mm -hmm. worse off why mm -hmm. does she need to go and speak again just replay her previous speeches they still stand uh, I, yeah. I, I think people want action, uh, you know, and I'm of the generation where these conferences were getting organized and I rolled my eyes at it then because mm. it's it, it's symbolic. I understand that there could have been some purpose, uh, but we're running out of time. We ran out of time. I don't think we need climate <laughs> conferences. We need climate action. I want to get our names in before we say goodbye. Thank you very much to Tony. Uh, technical producer to Sam, our producer. Thank you to Reshmi to Higher Ground Nair. Scott Shorts in February read, and I am your host, Tamara, growing cherries all year round. Yeah. That's me. I, I, I didn't deliver it right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>